Last time in our study of the book of Philippians, I told you that the Apostle Paul commands these believers to live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in Philippians 1.27. He tells them, as we saw in our last two studies, that there were two ways that they could live this gospel-worthy kind of life. By standing firm together for the gospel, he gives that to us in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 1. And not only by standing firm together for the gospel, but also by suffering faithfully together for the gospel. He tells us that in verses 29 and 30 of chapter 1. So these two ways, standing firm together for the gospel and suffering faithfully together for the gospel, are ways that we certainly can and must live gospel-worthy lives so that others could also see how the gospel is to be embraced by them and then also lived out by them. But those are certainly not the only ways to carry out this command of Paul. If these two ways could contextually be seen in showing this gospel to unbelievers, which I think is what he's primarily talking about there, and the first, this idea of standing firm together, for the gospel, might be what we could call the inside-out approach, where we are to so live by standing firm, striving together with one mind in the Spirit, so that as we march out into the world, the inside goes outside. And that's certainly one of the ways that we are to live these gospel-worthy lives in front of unbelievers. And it is certainly possible to see other worthy ways that the gospel in this context could be seen by, of course, suffering faithfully, taking our testimony outside. And then I think there are these various ways that we can actually show from the inside as the outside looks into us that we are showing ourselves faithful to the gospel. So whether you're talking about an inside-out approach where we go out to them or they are looking inside at or toward us, we are to live gospel-worthy lives. If Paul were to go on, as he does here in chapter 2, he's going to tell us what it looks like when the outside world looks inside to us, and they examine how we're living. For instance, look at what he says in verse 2 of Philippians chapter 2. He challenges, does Paul, the Philippians to live these gospel-worthy lives, beginning in verse 2, in six additional ways. For instance, he says in verse 2 that we are to be united in love. You see, he's not asking the world to love itself. They, of course, do that, but not in a gospel-worthy way. But the world is being challenged to look at us, and what they see about the church is that we are united in spiritual, godly, gospel-worthy lives. We're united in love. He also says there in verse 2 that we're to be in full accord. 
We're to be in full accord. We're together. Thirdly, he says, we're all to be thinking the one thing. We're all to be focused on the one thing. And then he says, fourthly, in the next set of verses, that we are not to be selfishly ambitious or proud. When the world looks at us, they don't see the same thing they see in themselves. Self-ambition, pride. They would not acknowledge that about themselves, of course. But they certainly don't want to see that in Christians, for then they will charge us, and it would be a legitimate charge, look at those hypocrites. They say they go to church, they say they love the Lord, they say they worship God, but they're as self-ambitious and proud as we are. So Paul says, when you're not like that, you're showing the world from the outside looking in how different you are. And then he even says, sixthly, that we're to look to others' interests ahead of our own. So from verse 2 and 3 and 4 of Philippians chapter 2, he tells us six things that we are supposed to be inside the church as the outside world is looking at us. And when I say at the church or inside the church, I don't mean this building with this roof and the four walls. I mean who we are as persons. The local church, members of Bethany Church, and any other local church for that matter. We are the church. We meet in this building, but we are the church. And the church is to live out in such a way these six ideals so that when the outside world is looking at us both individually and collectively, they're seeing something that is so different, so marvelous, so wonderful, so convicting, so challenging to their own lives that they'll say something like this, something's very different about them. They're a very, very different, peculiar kind of people in the best way of that term. They are people for whom I want to be like. I'm tired of living the life that I've lived. I'm tired of seeing the kind of compromise that I've been involved with. And when I see somebody who is united in love, being in full accord, all thinking the one thing, the gospel thing, not selfishly ambitious or proud, humbly considering others and looking to others' interests ahead of my own, that's what I want to aspire to. When you hear... The testimonies of those who are being baptized and they've seen others and how they've lived and how they've lived as Christians particularly and how convicting and challenging that can be. Now, I ask that question, how can we live in such a way? And Paul doesn't leave us in the lurch for an answer. He gives it to us. We might ask this question now. How is it that we could live in those six ways? And we're going to get to those six ways. Believe you me, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, not next week, but the week after, we're going to get to those six ways in verses 2, 3, and 4. And we're going to look at those very, very carefully. To ask the question, though, today, this morning, how is it that we can do all of these things? How can we as Christians live out both 
the inside-out approach, that's verses 27 to 30 of chapter 1, and the outside-in approach, that's chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. How can we do that? How is it possible? What's the critical key to understanding the basis, the, the essential motivation in doing all of this? And the answer to that very, very important question is in Philippians 2.1. It's in Philippians 2.1. And that's all the time I have today to talk about Philippians 2.1. Oh, I'm not going to stop. <laughs> but I'm only going to cover one verse. Because in Philippians 2.1, you have what we could say is the impetus the motivation, the background, the, the essential idea of what God Himself is doing in making us ready to live out those six things in verses 2, 3, and 4. And we're going to get after that to verses 5 through 11, which was read to you this morning, because the ultimate example of the one who lived perfectly those six things out of verses 2, 3, and 4 is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to see the exemplar extraordinaire. We're going to see the one who lived that perfectly and righteously and sinlessly. And this all goes together, my friends. This all goes together. Not just uh, chapter 1 of Philippians and how it flows into chapter 2, but also chapter 3 and chapter 4, even when Paul begins to chide Euodia and Syntyche because they weren't living in harmony in the Lord. And so, by all accounts, when the outside was looking inside and they saw strife and disunity, they might be able to say those hypocritical words, say, you're no different than we are. We have disunity and apparently so do you. And those hypocritical words would turn out to be true, at least in that case. No wonder Paul writes their names down for all posterity. Because they are examples for us to examine our lives, look at ourselves, and say, am I unified with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, how do you get the motivation to do that? How do you work tirelessly, and selflessly and endearingly to those around you in the church, in the local fellowship, for the sake of showing the outside world how they can just come on in and examine our lives. And while there won't be perfection, there will be the direction of these ideals. And for that, you and I have to be motivated we have to be given something that's beyond our own that gives us the impetus to do this very thing. And Paul covers that ground in verse 1. And here's what he says in Philippians 2.1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, and I'll go into chapter 2, verse 2, to give you the end of that command which gives us the ability to understand what Paul is saying. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. 
Complete my joy. So he gives us a command there. Complete my joy. And in order for you to complete my joy, not just Paul's joy as though he's selfishly talking about himself, but the joy of these Philippians and the joy of Christ and the joy of God and the joy of the Holy Spirit, we are told in no uncertain terms that there is to be joy in the Christian life and it comes from somewhere and Paul says, I have joy and I want you to complete such joy and you do it by understanding these four things in verse 1. And here's the first one. Let's call it the consolation we have in Christ. The consolation we have in Christ. Look at verse 1a. He says, so if there is any. Stop right there. This is called, in Greek text, a first-class conditional. And it's something like this. It's a first-class conditional statement. It's um, if, and I know the if to be true. That's what Paul's saying. If, and since this is the case with you, or maybe even something like this, because this is true, and so it's not the if as though it might not be true. It's not the if of, well, I sure hope it's true one day. He's saying, if, and I believe it to be the case. That's why you could legitimately translate it, since there is encouragement in Christ. Or because there is encouragement in Christ. You could translate it that way. And if you add what I said earlier about how Paul is saying you've got to live a gospel-worthy life, no wonder he says in that first statement in our English text, so. That links it to what he has just said. So, if you all are standing firm together for the gospel, and if you are suffering faithfully together for the gospel, and if you are seeing that you are granted not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for Christ, if that is what God is giving you as faithful believers to show to a watching world when they come into the church and they see what you're doing, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, stand firm. Suffer faithfully. So this is what you've got to do and you will do it as bona fide genuine believers in Jesus Christ, now expanding beyond the Philippians, even 20 centuries later to our own 21st century folks, 21st century Christians, Bethany Church, any local church, if you are truly a regenerate person, a believer in Jesus Christ, here is what you must do. Stand firm. Stand firm. It's a wicked world out there. Very, very challenging to live as a Christian in this world. I mean a true Christian. I mean a growing, flourishing Christian. Not a make-believe Christian. I mean a genuine believer in Christ. And if you're genuinely in Christ, 
you're going to need tremendous encouragement. And Paul says this, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, there's all encouragement in Christ. There's 100% encouragement in Christ. Then you can stand firm together for the sake of the gospel. You can suffer faithfully for the sake of the gospel. So if, if you're supposed to do that by being inside the church and growing and thriving so that you can show yourselves outside, so when we come to the place in chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, when the outside world is coming in to examine us, we don't have to go out there to them. They may also come in and say, what about this lifestyle? What about this profession of Christ? What about this that you say about yourselves? You, you say that you are encouraged when you are standing firm and suffering, but I want to see if it's so. I want to see if you're really true to what you believe. And Paul says, because or since or if it's true and I believe that it is, that there is any encouragement in Christ, you can stand firm. You can suffer faithfully. And this word encouragement, I've changed to our English word consolation. It can be translated, and it is in some versions, as consolation. Consolation. We need at times, because of suffering, consoling by Christ. Look, if you and I were to suffer, and I mean horribly suffer, it could be physical, but certainly for us, most of it, it's spiritual, right? It's uh, not always understanding what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to do it. Oh, it's clear in the Word, but getting from the Word to our own understanding and then living that out consistently, that's a challenge, isn't it? And we need repetition, and we need reinforcements, and we need encouragement, and we need consolation. And Paul is saying, oh, by the way, all the consolation that you need is bound up in Christ. In Christ. That is one of the most loaded phrases in all the Pauline vocabulary. In Christ. It means that I, like that baptism, I died to my sin. It's no longer master over me and I'm raised to walk in the newness of spiritual life. And it's because I'm in Christ. And Paul says, you got to have that encouragement. You, you absolutely must have that encouragement, including with suffering. And if it comes to you, whether spiritual or physical or both, and it will come to you to some degree before you go to glory, you're going to need encouragement, consolation in Christ. You want to see a passage that speaks to this almost as a perfect parallel to Philippians 2? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Think of this, my beloved Christian friend. Think of this. Think of this when you're down, discouraged, despondent. Think of this when you're suffering. Think of this when the spiritual challenges of life seem to be 
at their full force. Think of this. 2 Corinthians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. That word comfort, it's the same word we're talking about here, encouragement, consolation, comfort. Who comforts us in our what? Affliction. How many afflictions? All our affliction. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, there's that context of sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same afflictions, the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Paul says, I'm suffering. The apostolic band, those who are close associates with me, we're suffering. We're suffering for the sake of standing firm together for the gospel, and we're suffering faithfully as we suffer for the gospel, and you're beginning to experience that, Corinthians, and you will know that when you see our suffering, you will be greatly consoled in such a thing. Now, that's so encouraging, because you and I, when we see others responding to all of the challenges in their lives, it's so encouraging, so helpful, so consoling. In John chapter 11, verse 19, you remember when the two sisters, Mary and Martha, were so despondent over the death of their brother Lazarus? And in John chapter 11, verse 19, this very same word that we've translated consolation or, or encouragement is mentioned in John eleven nineteen, 19, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. I mean, they, they needed consolation. They needed to be encouraged. Look at verse 31. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. I mean, they, they had faithful friends to come alongside them. I thank you so much for being faithful friends who've come alongside me as Beth has struggled with this cancer diagnosis. Thank you. Thank you for consoling us. Thank you for how you've reached out to us your prayers, your meals, your, your extending of grace and mercy and consolation and encouragement to us, especially to Beth. This is, this is a difficult time. This is, a, this is a fighting against an insidious foe that lurks even in the body that is a result of the curse of sin on mankind in general. And, and this kind of disease doesn't fight fair. And every time you think you're, you're winning by 
some kind of treatment. The cancer cells even have a, a mutation that fights against everything you're doing to deal with it. Isn't there tremendous spiritual metaphors all over that? This is, this is a time, this is a place where we're going through it. And there will be a time and a place for which you'll be going through it and you'll need my encouragement. You'll need Beth's consolation. This is, this is why we're here. This is what it's all about. This is, this is why we arm ourselves and encourage ourselves and console ourselves in here and we equip each other with the Word of God and what it says if there is any encouragement, consolation in Christ and there is, then live in such a way that you are living gospel-worthy lives out there. And if they come in here and they watch you and how you respond to such things in life and they realize that they're not responding to those same challenges as you are, then maybe they might take a look in the mirror and say, I'm not responding like that at all. How can they say that? How can they do that? How can they respond that way? It seems to be beyond my capacity. And then that is when you can say, Oh, and by the way, it's beyond your capacity, and so it is mine. And here's the encouragement that I have. I'm encouraged in Jesus Christ. Here's a second one. Here's a second one. Let's call it the comfort of love we have from the Father. The comfort of love we have from the Father. Look at that second phrase in verse 1. If there is any, and remember, and there is, if there is any comfort from love. You say, well, I, I, don't, I don't see the Father listed there. Well, it's implied. It's implied. You want to know why? Because he talks about Christ in verse 1, and he talks about the Holy Spirit in verse 1. The Father is the one who extends His love to us. Oh, it's absolutely true. The Father extends His love to us. And we'll see that in a moment. That particular word, comfort, it's very close as a word to that word consolation or encouragement. Very, very close. Maybe shades of difference, but that's why sometimes you see in your English translations that a word that could be translated comfort is translated consolation or translated encouragement, or maybe even translated exhortation. These shades of meaning are very, very close, but they give us a sense of difference when it says this, comfort of love. Comfort of love. That's one of the marks of a Christian. In fact, it's, it's the greatest mark, isn't it? And now, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Oh, look at how the Christians love one another. They said that in the first century. Oh, look how these Christians love one another. There is no greater love than a man lays down his life for his friend. Where's the motivation for that going to come? How's anybody going to lay down their life for you? And how shall you be motivated to lay down your life for them? How is that possible? What's the basis? What's the motivation? What's the impetus to do such a thing? 
It's the comfort of the love of the Father that He has granted to us. That's the love of God. That's the love of the Father. You know Romans 5.5 says that God's love has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. God's love has been shed abroad in our hearts, the hearts of Christians, by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's the comfort from love. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but will have everlasting life. Motivated by the love of God. That's the comfort of God's love that pushes us forward in our desire to live gospel-worthy lives. It's the love of God. You want to you see it in bold relief? Look at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another... For love is from where? From God. That's that's why I think Paul is saying here that there's consolation in Christ and there's comfort of love from the Father because love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, what he means by that is true love, real love, Genuine love, self-sacrificial love, other-centered love. Anyone, verse 8, who does not love does not know God because God is love. How does this love manifest itself from the heart of God? Verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Look at verse 19. We love, why? How? Because He first loved us. That's the only way we love. The only way we love God is because He first determined to put His love upon us. You know, when you are suffering as a Christian, you are suffering yet emboldened and fortified and and made ready for more suffering if it were to be brought to you because of Christ's consolation and because of the Father's comfort from love. Thirdly, thirdly, the fellowship we have with the Holy Spirit. The fellowship we have with the Holy Spirit. Notice what he says again in chapter 2 of Philippians verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, if there's any comfort from love, love of the Father, and there is, and then this, any participation in the Spirit, and there is. You know who's involved in encouraging and consoling and loving and fellowshipping with you? The three persons of the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I am about to come out of my shoes with excitement. Do you recognize that to live in this sin-cursed world and to stand up for Jesus Christ and be bold 
and to live your life in such a consecrated, separated, sanctified way that you're saying no to the lusts of the world and you're saying yes to everything that's right and good, you better have a motivation and an impetus to do that with a power that is beyond your own. Isn't that true? You have it. You have it in the consolation of the Christ. You have it in the comfort of the Father, the comfort of His love, and you have it with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. By the way, when it says there, fellowship or participation in the Spirit, in could be in, with, or by. A little preposition could be in, with, or by. It could be the participation or fellowship in the Spirit or with the Spirit or by the Spirit. Either way, any of those three, it's this. The Holy Spirit is so pervasively real in my life that my very fellowship with my brothers and sisters in our suffering only happens because we all have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit of God is the one who provides our fellowship with one another. This is, this is incredible truth. Did you know that in the Old Testament economy, before the coming of the Christ and before the Acts 2 Pentecost event, that those in the Old Testament, unless they were kings or, or priests, uh, they had some kind of office for which God would uh, give them uh, an imbued greater sense of the Holy Spirit, that they as old covenant believers did not or could not say that they were in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit like you and I can. We live on this side of the cross and we have the Holy Spirit as the resident truth teacher, as the Lord of life, as the one who inspired the scriptures, as the one who convicts us of sin, as the very one who comforts us in our affliction through the agency of the Spirit by Christ so that you and I are in fellowship with the Spirit of the living God. This is so profound. This is so grand that I think we should stop right there. <laughs> and I think what we should do is bow our heads and pray to the three persons of the Godhead right now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have given us your love and the comfort that comes from your love. And I want to thank you, Jesus Christ, for giving us rich abiding consolation. Yes, we do thank You for the cross. And yes, we do thank You for giving us the kind of spiritual life that only comes from Your blood-bought hands. But oh, thank You so much, especially in our standing firm and suffering faithfully that in those bleak times you give us your very consolation. We need your consoling 
And we have that through the agency of the Holy Spirit, who in our fellowship together as a corporate body, you give us these precious things so that we might endure the sufferings that we have. Oh, thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you that you are God in three persons, the blessed Trinity. And thank you that it is revealed for us in places like Philippians 2.1 to show us that each member, each person of the Godhead is even now from eternity past on in through eternity future to give us the consolation and the comfort and the fellowship that we so desperately need. And we thank you for the truth of 2 Corinthians 13, 14, which says the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of of the Holy Spirit be with you all. We thank you for it. Through Christ and the power of the Spirit, we say thank you, Father. Amen and amen.